Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California, Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey, guys. Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Edgar Ortega. Hi, Edgar. Hello, Dr. Parks. And third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Joshua. How you doing, Dr. Parks? The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about near-death experiences uh, and what they mean or what, they, what the implications are, um, psychological aspects, studies, perhaps. Um, and, you know, I, have people known anyone? I just got to throw it out there. Do you know anyone that's had any of these experiences? Uh, uh, no. You, no. Yeah. I've, yes. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I'm maybe. More I want to talk to Joshua first before I talk to Tony. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm 60 minutes. Joshua, how, how close, if you're share, comfortable sharing it, uh, um, it's probably probably okay. I won't give any identifying yeah, no names, information. No names, right? But it was a a family member of mine, um, an older family member of mine, when she was undergoing uh, chemotherapy for for uh, cancer. She ended up having an experience when she was in a coma, a medically induced coma, that she mm. kind of felt like she was the whole tunnel light thing and then heard a voice that says you know your work's not done yet you have the choice to go forward and die or you have the choice to go back and she was like oh okay i think i'll go back and then she came back and woke up wow and she was different afterward like in what way um i think she just felt a little bit more like connected um family wise and was more outside of her herself in a way in a good way yeah yeah i mean i don't need to speak Ill, Ill of how she was before of course but in the sense that her better way she it was just you could feel that it was a little easier to connect with her maybe more mm. present oh, well. or something what who, who did she attribute the voice to was it god not was sure. it not sure and i think i asked mm. actually at one point and the answer was sort of a sure. sorry audience sure, sure, at home. Sure. I'm shrugging. Yeah, it's a I don't know. <laughs> now was she religious before that? Interestingly, she had attem- attended seminary for a while and was wow. going to be religious, oh, wow. but then was basically not affiliated or not really engaged in any of that any longer for you know decades and decades. Maybe some okay. vague sense of de- belief, but it didn't necessarily, from what she described, increase her belief in an afterlife that much. Okay, because it kind of already existed, basically already existed. I I don't know. She just de- she described it as before, where she was not very religious. Oh, um, after after she like left seminary and did all this kind of stuff, that she was not really interested in that anymore. And maybe it brought it back a little bit, but you know, I actually I should ask. Interesting. I'm sure there's more nuance there. That's that's interesting because yeah she was not very religious but it did have a, a positive impact I you know I have a friend who reported this to me uh, not religious at all uh, 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 perhaps an atheist and then um, had a and also very similar to what you said just doesn't know it seemed one hundred percent real 
it did have a positive impact on him. Mm -hmm. So yeah, very similar things. Don't believe he said tunnel, but he did say there's a darkness and then entered into a light. Yes, Mm -hmm. there was that Mm -hmm. part of it. Mm -hmm. And it was a feeling of peace, calm, Mm -hmm. a serene feeling that was very positive. I I can relate to the outcomes and, and I didn't have a near-death experience, but some sort of what we initially thought when we were thinking about this topic about afterlife experiences. And for me, it's more like that connection of this world with that afterlife, which we're humans and a lot of us, or some of us are curious about if there's an afterlife or no, it has to do sometimes with religion and spirituality or not. But for me, I did feel some of these outcomes about connection or enhancement of me being more connected with myself. and. And I was already Catholic, so it still maybe enhanced some of that spirituality anyways, altruism, things like that. But for me, it was more of like I felt connected with a relative who passed away, and I felt guilty. It was my grandma from my mom's side. I felt guilty because I was not there in her last, I guess, months or years because I had my own car accident. I was two years off from you know school, things like that, and I just didn't want to pursue my normal life until I improve or whatever. So, and at one night, I just... I was not asleep, it was daylight, you know, my brothers were probably in the room, lights were on, and I just was trying, to, I was I was probably feeling guilty or sad or something, and I just, like, this kind of experience, I don't know if it's an out-of-body experience or how to explain it, but moment of, like, peace, and, like, I felt that my grandma was, kind of touched me, and kind of, and I don't know if she talked to me or not, I don't remember, but it just kind of made me feel that, you know, that it's okay, don't worry about it, you mm-hmm. know, and, and after that, things got better in terms of overcoming that guiltiness. Wow. And did that increase your belief that there is an afterlife? I think so. Okay. Uh, I think so. I don't, like I said, I don't know whether it's because I read it was religion or not, and but more of the, even the spirituality and how there must be something. I don't know what it is, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but, but something it must be something. Now, I've heard this many times from different clients. It does make me think. I've heard it from different family members who just absolutely swear that different kinds of things similar to what you're talking about Edgar have happened and make it does make me think and and you know really when it talking about near-death experiences some of the research says about things like floating up seeing their body yeah you know how can that happen yeah how that makes me think right right and there was actually one report that there was actually you know flatline and during that flatline they reported details so how could there be no brain activity in the reporting Mm -hmm. details that makes me think but, well, okay. Let me yeah. let me yes, um, tell you guys about what I found um, on Scientific American. There's this neuroscientist. His name's Christoph Koch. Koch. I don't know. Um, oh. But he is uh, he is one of their experts on near death experiences. He studies them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he gave this really interesting neurological explanation, which really I I I thought it made a whole lot of sense to me. So he describes it. Like a town that loses power one neighborhood at a time, local regions of the brain go offline one after another. The mind whose substrate is whichever neurons remain capable of generating electrical activity does what it always does. It tells a story shaped by the person's experience, memory, and cultural expectations. So given these power outages, this experience may produce the rather strange and idiosyncratic stories that make up the corpus of near-death experience reports. To the person undergoing it, the near-death experience is as real as anything the mind produces during normal awakening or waking. When the entire brain has shut down because of complete power loss, 
the mind is extinguished along with consciousness. If and when oxygen and blood flow are restored, the brain boots up and the narrative flow of experience resumes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I I, this this there's some of that kind of resonates with some of the research that I'm gonna try to be careful about. So this is from a um, a study about out of hospital cardiac arrest survivors. Okay, and this was in a critical care journal um, in 2010, and so they did. Uh, identify it was about 10 to 20 percent perhaps in the past research about um, folks that have out of hospital cardiac arrest report near-death experiences but they did found that um, there was a higher serum partial pressure of oxygen now you you doctors tell me what that is (laughs) higher serum partial pressure of oxygen that was associated with near-death experiences so that has something to do with the the uh, the level of oxygen in the blood I take it oh doctors you just passed your boards too (laughs) I can't. I can't imagine what the connection would be. But okay, so they, but they've noticed that that was a part of it. Um, they did seem to. It, it, it was more common with younger people. So why would it be more common with younger people than with older hmm. people? Okay, um, there did uh, the other kind Near-death of near death experiences were more common in younger people than. Yes, it's probably because yes. older people just have real death experiences. <laughs> oh my god! And they, okay, but they can they can tell you after that. Well, I mean, is this is the study saying that like people who almost died, and then the subset of those that have near death yes. experiences are young? Yes, people? there were perspective studies where uh, meaning that you know they they didn't uh, they 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 assessed them before um, they had actually had the experience, and then they they did it, and then they reassessed them. So it, it seemed to happen more often with younger people, oh, all right? Um, so even children, you know, would have it, you know, things like that. So what's okay. going on with that? I mean, that kind of made me think, um, you know, there's also, you know, different kinds of combinations about, uh, there's some that, um, uh, they, you know, other things that they've found that are not associated, there, there was no factor with like religious belief or things like that. Um, which I kind of was wondering about, like you maybe if you're more religious, you tend to have these kinds of things about afterlife or um, thoughts about that. Um, there was no association. You know, there were, there were some. There were some one. Some studies showed association with fear uh, of death, and some not. So overall, I'd say it's a wash. But um, you know, I it they there was another study um, that had to do with okay, so maybe are they making it up, or or is this a created memory and they so they compared they did a a memory assessment scale use a memory assessment scale to identify if this was some sort of um this seemed to be a memory where it was you were describing something that you actually saw or is this some sort of created memory or false memory and it found that it did not seem similar to a false memory It, it was they were really describing something they were actually seeing so i would i would agree with you tosha that it does seem to be some sort of hallucinatory event perhaps uh, at least that's my take on it, and that they're I, actually describing what they're right. what they have seen, and they believe it, and they 100% believe it. They, you know, they're not creating it; it's not coming from their religious beliefs, and that that actually might make it enhance it. The fact that they weren't religious, and then it kind of happened. So, since we're talking about what are possible explanations to this, I, I want to add a little more. 
on that. We talk about some of the ones they found is anything from like the scientific versus non-scientific. In general, you know, scientific is going to look at things like hallucinations, the personalization, detachment from the body, things like that. And religion is going to be more on the afterlife experience, the separation from the spirit and the body, things like that. Um, I did find what Toshi was saying or might be related to that about the dying brain hypothesis, which is kind of widespread, talks about hallucinations, but brain but the cause of the brain activity when the cells are dying, meaning like maybe during the cardiac arrest or when they're going through some major stressor in crisis. And this might help explaining like survive, people who survive, what are the stories like that, right? There's the anoxia, meaning like lack of oxygen, that even in some studies that they've done with the, you know, people, pilots who fly and like, especially I guess military pilots who, when they undergo like rapid acceleration, acceleration and they go unconscious and they kind of have almost like a similar near death experience when they have like tunnel vision. Um, and it's associated with the, maybe even like temporal love uh, uh, activity and it might cause hallucinations. Other ones like, um, and I'm gonna ask Josh in this one, it's related to release of endorphins like how can that lower pain levels, increase pleasure? And, and there's even for the drugs like ketamine and DMT, and I'm gonna let Josh explain that a little more, but it's a psychedelic drug that in some studies by this professor of psychiatry, uh, Strassman in the 1990s to 95, when they injected people with this, it cannot reassemble some of these kind of mystical non-near-death uh, experiences. And, and he talks about how maybe DMT, uh, which is dimethyltryptamine, which is like I said, a psychedelic, cannot, it's releasing bird and death, and kind of make that connection of why maybe in bird we have this tunnel because we came to life, but in death mm -hmm. it's kind of similar as well. But a lot of this, and I, I'm opening to you, Josh, a lot of these chemical-based theories from what I found is that they don't, they cannot explain everything, like all the features that near-death experiences have. What is what you know, uh, Joshua, since you are inter very interested in ketamine and other, you know, yeah. psychedelics? It's, a, it's an interesting thing. So there was this theory floating around for a little while that there is a discrete amount of dimethyltryptamine. Oh, I think we're actually about halfway through. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Joshua. Very considerate of you for allowing me this <laughs> opportunity to say that if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking about near-death experiences, causes, uh, psychological impact of them, uh, implications for people's lives and how they live them. So, Joshua, you're talking about uh, maybe how um, certain ex psychoactive uh, um, substances might uh, have similar characteristics or qualities in near-death experiences. Yeah, there's a there's a couple papers kind of going out about this, uh, sort of in the psychedelic community. And there was this, uh, I guess you say, wives' tale, I don't know, about the fact that the pineal gland, which secretes predominantly melatonin, less than 0 0.2 uh, grams, located sort of in the center of the brain, would hold a sort of discrete amount of DMT. And there has been some study that suggests that there are trace amounts of DMT that exists endogenously within the brain mm. and I think there was even one study that showed that there was a certain amount that was present within like a, a mice uh, in the brain of a mouse I think there's been a lot of controversy and a lot of skepticism sort of thrown onto the idea that during near-death experiences DMT is really dimethyltryptamine uh, as Edgar pointed out is released um, there's, there was that idea that because the DMT experience is so similar 
it's almost tit for tat um, mm. to near-death experiences that like, okay, is D- DMT being released? And since it is found endogenously in trace amounts, is that what's going on? Now, there's still, it seems spurious, but there's still some thought that, you know, like a lot of this near-death experience conversation that we're talking about, even partial pressures of oxygen and whatnot, has to do with like oxygenation of the brain, whether or not the brain's getting um, enough blood flow. There's some thought that maybe under extreme stress, like in situations of near-death um, and as you're approaching death, that sort of, maybe there's a, a rapid surge in DMT or maybe you only need a little bit of it and then there's like a massive release of serotonin which DMT is remarkably similar in structure to that maybe that's what sort of produces sort of these these experiences but I don't know everything's pretty inconclusive at this point yeah I mean there's a lot of research all over the place like a you know how you know where is it coming from other medical I think that's one of the medical explanations for these things, and I think that that is one of the reasons why it's it's really tough to sort through. I'm just going to say that there, you know, in the Lancet, there was a a, a study in in uh, 2001 um, in the Netherlands, and they found through studying people with near death experience that there were no uh, categorical medical causes or you know different uh, um, ways that they could identify. Well, uh, this is the reason why is because they did this type of experience of 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 cardiac arrest or they, they're this kind of um, levels of oxygen in their blood or thing, anything like that. So I think that's why it's so difficult. Here's another thing is that have you, I kind of think about well, who is the person researching this because, you know, we might very well have a show on um, a paranormal psychology and things like that. But when you look at some of the chief researchers of paranormal psychology, they're uh, for a lot of times, at least I feel like, you know, when you look at read some of these po- you know, things that show evidence of paranormal activity, they are believers in paranormal activity. So one of the oh, okay. chief researchers of near-death experiences identifies as a Christian. Again, I have no problem with Christianity. I was raised a Christian. My parents are devout Christians. I have great respect for Christianity. But that it just makes me think uh, and question when this person is coming up with a lot of findings, especially sure, uh, sure. things like uh, the floating up. He was the one that actually that reported the thing I said earlier, which is the floating up when the person was flatlined and was able to describe details of that. I just I, I question it. And I feel like, you, you know, if you're, if you're assessing a study, I feel like you have to, at least that has to come up in your brain. You have to think about those things. That is really interesting. And I don't know if you guys came across this, but I read in the Scientific American um, that these near-death experiences are actually, based off of studies, no more likely to occur in um, religious people versus secular yeah. uh, non-religious people. I saw that too. Right. And I had a thought of that that I can add to that, which I, I, I agree in this, the same that I came across, but I, I don't think that, yeah, um, has to do with being privately religious or not that you might or not be. But one other thing that I did find is that um, some of these connections, I guess, might be um, based on the narrative that you have, uh, right. basically, like, like maybe seeing Jesus if you're American and Catholic Christian versus if you're Hindi, you might see, I mm-hmm. forget what the name of the king was. Mm-hmm. Or, or it depends on what you believe that might be the narrative that you, that connection happened, that uh, hearing someone or seeing someone, things like that. But I, but yes, definitely agree on the part that it doesn't, if you had it or not, that doesn't 
make you more prone to have uh, near-death experiences, which I believe, did we draw numbers already? I think it happens in at least up to 20% of people that come close to death. Yeah, now I saw that too, 10, 20. Mm -hmm. There are mm -hmm. some commonalities, uh, like this is from a 1980 study, so there, this person saw there were five com commonalities. First, there's a feeling of peace or calm or painlessness, lack of fear, a detachment from your body or a floating mm -hmm. kind of experience. You're gonna have some sort of darkness or passing through a dark tunnel. And again, my, that is consistent so far with what my friend reported. And then ascending toward a light at the end of the darkness. Now this person, that my friend did not say ascending, it was more of a stepping into. Uh, and entering the light or entering into a world or a state where the light appears to have its origin. That is also some, consistent with what my friend said. You know, I think that that sort of harkens back to a thing that Edgar was mentioning about sort of the parenthetical nature of life and death with the fact that you enter the world through a birth canal and by all approximation, that's the first time you'll be ex your you know retinas will be exposed to any direct light. So it's blinding and it's very bright. And it's like when you sort of come out into the world and it feels like you're moving through a tunnel, a canal. It does seem interesting to me that that obviously is a foundational memory and something that which you know you kind of hinge everything else or hang everything else off of. And I also think it's interesting that the content of near-death experiences tends to be very, very familial, probably attachment-related, psychoanalysis coming out, <laughs> attachment-related that it has to do with these foundational sort of these links that you make early, early on. And that I think, you know, people, when they have these near-death experiences, they don't see, you know, really nuanced biblical stories if they're going to see something religious. They don't see like, ah, Peter was here and he had scales that fell off his eyes and stuff like that. Or not, excuse me, not Peter, Paul. They see really foundational archetypes. Like they see Jesus. They see a light. They see things that are like, I would say, much more rudimentary in as they're like gaining identity and gaining ideas about what life and death are like. It's, it's not the nuanced stuff. You... It's like as your brain is dying, it's moving back towards its more rudimentary state mm -hmm. and kind of reviewing the stuff it picked up first as you go through life. Mm -hmm. What do you think? There, well, I mean, that is a common thing. Uh, it, it may not be one of the, the most common things, but there's a common thing where there's some sort of life kind of review. Um, so that's kind right. of... That, I think that, that does was a happen. very interesting analysis, Joshua. I, I had more commonalities, if I could share them. Um, one was that these experiences don't, uh, they're, they're not constrained by the usual uh, time and space sort yes. of boundaries. Yeah. Um, they, you may meet a loved one. Um, you may be given a choice of whether to continue in this path or go back to your living state, which is like Joshua, your family member's experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also found that the, again, this is from the Scientific American article, but the studies that have been done uh, have shown that pre pretty common among subjects who have experienced these, they recall them with, with clarity. It's just so um, branded into their, their recall. Um, and they also feel very strongly a sense of a noetic quality, which I, I, you know, we've talked about in the psychedelic episode, I think, is just the sense that it is true, 
very mm-hmm. true and perhaps even like greater than truth. It's like truth beyond truth. I felt, I felt the truth. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 I do uh, think the point about the time is very interesting. It's sort of the time dilation because patients who under undergo like a ketamine treatment and they, if they get to the point where they get to the point of like dissociating or whatever, um, time loses all meaning in that space Mm -hmm. and so it might help explain why people are able to recount like what was going on around them in real time even if they were flatlining in the sense that the way you're probably taking in information is not the same way you would if you were standard waking consciousness right like dreams don't feel like they have a ton of time involved with them as well right right Mm -hmm. i don't know just a yeah, that's one of those uh, psychedelic experiences measures is your sense of time. Right. Right. Um, let me just kind of follow up on just some actual stats of that, you know, when they've studied this, that 54%, uh, this is a study of 11 people very intensely, 54 or six of them said that they that they met God or that God was there or spoke to them or something. Four of them said angels, four of them said some sort of voice, and three of them said there were deceased relatives there. I want to kind of move into, you know, how life changing and permanently life changing this is. Right. So, yeah. uh, you know, they, according to the same study of these of these ten folks, nine of them said that they had uh, a more of an appreciation and a renewed sense of purpose in life, and they became more caring and more loving. Now, it, they followed up later on, uh, eight years later, and they they were. Uh, as changed or more so. So this is a long-lasting event that happens where they are permanently changed for the better, actually. What do you make of that? I'm really is, interested Have you ever heard to, of anything like that? Yeah. I'm really interested to hear negative experiences and if that changed people. <laughs> well, I mean, in that same study, uh, one person, it was not filled with a feeling of peace or love or oh, joy, God. but resentment. And another <laughs> one said angry. So of those 11 people, now I'm not, I don't know the reason. So one of my speculations, well, they like, oh, I need to go back. I'm so angry with myself for not, uh, you know, making use of it. Or why didn't I see this before? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they, that's what they reported. So it's not always, always positive emotions, but it does seem to be overwhelming. Yeah. I'd say 80, 90% in the studies that I saw that it's an extremely positive event and um, your life is permanently changed. Yeah. That's what it appears to be. So, have you know, do you do you know of any kind of psychological treatment or process or anything similar to such a life change? Perhaps DM, DMT use. I want to be careful. I want to be careful. Not recommending to be the listeners. Guy. Yeah, listeners. Doctor Poole is not recommending choosing DMT. I do not condone any illegal activity. It's not illegal in Peru, apparently. Oh wow. That's, Something that so, you can so sh- make sh- heads or tails of if you wish. Should, should we put, see, that's not recommended, should we put people through near-death experiences then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. More possible? Well, okay, like okay, but no, here, here is something I will say, okay. though. I will say that. That if, uh, if, someone, if one of my clients had gone through some sort of cardiac arrest or near-death experience, and uh, I would definitely ask them about the experience and validate it. Because mm-hmm. I did see from the studies that people were afraid to talk about it. Many people mm-hmm. were afraid to talk about it because they were going to be deemed as crazy or um, th- that they were just imagining it all, even though it was incredibly real and impactful. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's right, totally. Harry I Potter agree. Thing. 
where like at the end he's talking to Dumbledore and he's like, is this just all in my mind? And it's like, he's in this death space and he's like, of course it is, but should that make it any less true? Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that, that brings up philosophical questions of is everything a mental experience? So does it make it any less real? Yeah. Oh boy. Right. Coming down to two minutes left, here. guys. No, we should cover Let's all stoicism in two minutes. Oh my God. <laughs> no, I mean, I, but okay, so I, I'm going to say, you know, there's a, a sense of higher consciousness. There's a more of a belief in God and a more a sense of intuition. A, mm-hmm. a, many people said they, they were felt like there was a, a an energy, a more connection with energy or surrounding them. Yeah. Or, uh, and so I feel like they 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 felt they wanted uh, they were more loving people and more empathic people. So it it. Again, it wasn't just a feeling. They actually did things. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's extremely important. I like mean, a- I, this is so much, so similar to what I've read about firsthand accounts of psychedelics. So mm-hmm. similar, um, especially the ones where uh, subjects have been on death's door, right? Get given a terminal diagnosis and, and then taken a psychedelic. And then they completely have a, change perspective about death and the time that they have left okay it's so, so similar if, to that if if you could either electrically or with uh, a, a um a chemical like D, like suppress dmt and you can specifically target a part of your brain where you can trigger this experience people know it's a created thing okay the electrical stimulation or whatnot um do you imagine this is going to be a treatment in the future would you, uh, do you feel like this is a probably where we're going to go? Yes. They're yeah. already doing ayahuasca treatment with veterans who have significant PTSD and the subjective feeling of an ego loss has completely reoriented their lives in a lot of, in a lot of them. So it just becomes like how to target it and how to identify the folks who are going to have a good trip rather than a bad trip, something like that. Mm-hmm. And protecting people who have pre-existing conditions that can't tolerate it, like bipolar or schizophrenia. And that's the last word. Thank you. (laughs) It's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about uh, near-death experiences and the impact that it has on people. Thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi, Drs. Edgar Ortega, and Dr. Joshua Poole. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr@gmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucr@gmail.com, and you can listen to past podcasts on Let's of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. This episode was recorded in each of our respective homes and then mixed by our producer at KUCR, Elliot Fong. So special thanks go out to him. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>